Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Joined today, he's a two-time Olympian, retired professional fencer, representing Great Britain, performance director, and author. It's Lawrence Halstead. How are you doing today, Lawrence? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thanks, Alex. Glad to be here. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? So I grew up in London um, and into a, actually I grew up into a, an Olympic family. Both my mom and dad were Olympic fences as well. So grew up surrounded by Olympic memorabilia and stories of their experiences back in the 60s and 70s in the Olympics. Um, older brother, older sister, uh, a brother who was seven years older, so who was just kept, I mean, pushing me far beyond anything or Oh, I was pushing myself to to try and catch up far beyond anything I was capable of. Um, generally, I was involved in everything sporty that I could be. Uh, didn't care too much for school, except for the sports classes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I was I was just a, one of those kids who just loved everything. Everything sport wise, took part in everything as much as I could, and just got through school to yeah, however I could. With your parents being fencers, was that something that they kind of brought to the family and kind of wanted you guys to have more knowledge of or maybe possibly get involved in at a young age? Um, I guess they were they were happy that I did. My brother and sister actually didn't take to fencing. I think they tried it but didn't didn't really stick with it. So I was probably the last hope of my parents to have a fencer in the family. Uh, but actually, to be honest, I never really felt the pressure to do it. I obviously had all the opportunities. My mum was running a kids class on Saturdays that I took part in. It was actually a, it was, it was also a brilliant coach. I had the same coach who was at that just fun kids afternoon all the way through to my Olympics in London. It was the same Polish coach. He was actually the best coach in the country. So I had the best opportunities in that kind of sense. I started when I was seven um but yeah it was kind of presented as we'll we'll support you with what you need if you, if you want to do it but I, I never felt like I had to growing up in London what was your favorite thing to do out on the streets or things like that because coming from America we hear about the culture the kind of the atmosphere what was a favorite memory that you had growing up in London what what was the culture and atmosphere that you've heard about it's London? more like I mean I think people get along a lot easier. Um, it's more like kind of family orientated. Um, people get along, kind of interact a lot more. I think with America, we, there's so many different cultures, so many different things. And I think London, it's probably the same way, but you just see like from the people, like if you watch online or videos, you kind of just see like, it's so different in both countries, but it's mm. still the positive things that happen. Yeah. Um, what did I like doing? I mean, I probably shouldn't talk about some of the things I like doing out on the streets. <laughs> uh, I think actually one of the things about London is it, it's, it is just a, a huge city. So we didn't have the, we were not in the center, but we were kind of within greater London. So we weren't just allowed out as kids to kind of run and play around the streets. Like you could maybe old enough, you could walk to a friend's house, but there was, it was, it was only much later in your teens that you could actually kind of roam out by yourselves. So um, I think I was, I, yeah, I don't, I don't imagine I, I was just kind of 
taking part in, I don't know, music classes or sports activities every weekend and then going to friends' houses. So we didn't really make use of London until I was, I don't know, 15, 16, when I was kind of out, out going to parties and actually kind of exploring the city a bit more independently. What sports kind of captured your eye? I played most rugby, football. We had to play cricket at school, but I didn't particularly like that. Um, I liked, I, I pretty much liked everything. Obviously, I was doing a lot of fencing all the way through. So I, I also liked tennis and badminton. When we went skiing a fair bit, I, I really loved that. Um, what else? I mean, pretty much everything I could, I could try. I enjoyed doing. Went swimming quite a lot. I did some diving. I went to diving classes and life life rescue classes and anything that got me active and yeah, learning new skills. Each one of those sports is a different style. Some are combat, some are physical, some are not as physical. Did one kind of be more a favorite over time? Like you talked about rugby, rugby and fencing, there's different styles. They're kind of different how it, the sport happens, but was that maybe why you drove to a certain sport in general? Yeah, absolutely. Rugby and fencing couldn't be more different. One is, yeah, individual combat sport, kind of, it's combat, but it's not in like boxing or MMA. And rugby is a team thing, all about the kind of bonding with your teammates, huge kind of hard hitting, like really a different yeah, the opposite ends of the spectrum of sports. And that's what it is what I enjoyed about it. I think that I could do both. Um, I actually got to a point where I was, I was pretty good at rugby and I had to make a decision whether to choose rugby or, or fencing to really kind of, to focus on. I was better in, in a kind of national level in, in fencing. So I, I chose that. And I, and also rugby is, is pretty bad for your health. Like your, your physical health just, as soon as people get bigger and stronger, you, yep. you there's just injuries all over the place. But I still, I actually came back to rugby well as well a little bit later. I took a break, so I, I did focus on fencing for my kind of late teens, and then I went to university. And in my second two years of university, I wanted to to focus more on on the university experience. So I stopped fencing for those two years and took up rugby again. So rugby's quite big in the English universities. Um, so I had a couple more years of really experiencing that kind of team, like real bonding with a, a big group. Yeah, that was, a, that was amazing. And then I, I, then I switched back to fencing again. Here for me, I didn't get into, like, I never played rugby. I, my college that I went to kind of got me exposed to rugby because they were kind of a national leading team in the States. And I just watch it and I'm thinking, Okay, if I was out there, I'd probably get injured. Um, something bad would happen. And I'm like, I'm good staying off to the side and watching because it's just intense. Were you ever worried that you mentioned that you picked fencing over rugby at that time? But with your parents being both fencers, did they kind of pressure you to go in that direction or they were supportive no matter what decision you were going to make? Yeah, even at that point, I don't, I don't remember feeling any pressure to choose fencing. Um, I mean, uh, there, there was no, at that time I was choosing, there was no career, there was no future in fencing. Like you could, you could be a fencer in your spare time. And in Britain, there was no funding, there was no like professional fences. So 
it's not like they would really wanted me to to drive to become the best in the world like we we weren't that in in britain at that time so and in rugby there is a professional league so but uh yeah i think they just they just wanted me to choose what what i enjoyed the most i think my mum didn't like the fact that it was it was dangerous rugby you are going to get yeah broken bones and dislocations and fencing is actually even though it's a combat sport it's one of the safest sports of all i think it was safer than badminton in terms of injuries interesting mm-hmm. i mean those bad men people they go jump they go crazy out there on that court <laughs> did you have anyone that kind of inspired you or motivated you growing up well i had this coach a polish coach who was just a fantastic guy he was like a, a bit of a mr miyagi character um just really loving and kind of kind and and brilliant uh, uh, the best coach in the country by far um so he was just a great kind of driver in everything I did I ha- and I had a teammate from that early years I think he started when he was 10 and me at seven in the same club and we trained together all the way through to both my Olympics we were in every junior senior team every world championships up to the two Olympics and he he was he was actually he was better than me he was the best fencer we've ever had in the country but we just followed each other and pushed each other so I think rather than kind of being a role model he was just we just pushed each other every every single day our kind of internal rivalry drove us to to places that we hadn't ever had kind of success we hadn't had in the in Britain before do you feel if you didn't have that teammate, it might have made your journey a little bit harder because n- maybe there wasn't a person that was pushing you to be at the best level that you could be? I think neither of us would have gotten where we did without each other and our coach, but it, it's also each other. Um, we just, yeah, it was so often for years almost, it was just the two of us at training, uh, kind of pushing each other. There would be other people there, but we were the only ones kind of really really going for it and and it was almost all we needed for for quite a long time was each other to because we just both wanted to beat each other so much and we were best friends at the same time so it was kind of a cool super right he really was my biggest rival all the, almost all the way through and my closest friend at the same time during your time as a fencer did you ever learn something about yourself that maybe you didn't know like a certain skill a certain mindset things like that I think you're learning about yourself all the time in sport and especially at the elite level you're kind of it holds a mirror up to you and your behavior because you're always at these extremes of emotions where you're you're reacting and you're seeing your reactions which are not always pretty so I mean I learned pretty early on that I was the kind of guy that suffers badly in defeat so every time I lost right from 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 the from being a kid onwards kind of every competition I lost and I'd lose almost all of them I mean there's count on two hands how many competitions I won in my career almost but uh I would be in tears and kind of really take days or week a week to get over a a, a bad loss and that continued until I was in my mid 20s the last time I cried and losing in a competition not that I cried every time, but the last time I cried was, I was age 24. I was in the senior team for many years. It was a senior world cup in Germany. And I remember just, I was, I was devastated. It took me a, at least a week to get over that. Um, so that was a, uh, that was one learning I had to get used to. 
I think a lot of athletes that are listening to this can probably relate to that because those big losses and like t- big title matches or like celebrate or world cups competitions, things like that, that hits them hard because they work so hard to get to that level. And then that one loss, it kind of just makes them feel, was it all worth it to get up to that moment? Like you worked so hard, you took risks, you didn't have time for yourself, but that loss means more than making that journey to that spot. Yeah. And what, what people tend to do, and it's probably the most common issue that I've seen in, in, in all athletes, actually, especially young athletes is they make it about themselves. It means something about who they are Mm -hmm. they lose. And as I felt, it meant I was a failure and I was not good enough. And I I was a human kind of, I was an embarrassment and that's, that's a, just a, it's a falsity. It's a falsehood and an incredibly damaging one. So we can talk more about it, but I, I ended up in the entirely opposite place when I was finishing my career in my second Olympics. I was, I, I didn't feel the losses at all. I could, I could kind of waft them away in 10, 15 minutes, even the worst. And that was, that was a, a fair bit of work to get to that point, but it was, so much more powerful a place to be in not not suffering the defeats not having that backlash afterwards is a far far more powerful way to to compete and to perform was olympics always that goal for you like were you always wanting to go to perform represent your country at the olympics yeah i mean i was a seven-year-old looking at olympic posters around my house and olympic no medals unfortunately but yeah it was every time it came on we were we were watching it as a family i knew it was the pinnacle it was the pinnacle in our sport it was always the dream yeah talk about the process to get on the team a lot of people in a lot of the countries know that there's maybe qualifiers or certain competitions that you have to win to even make the team what was that process for you to get that spot it was very different both to to each olympics actually there are a few different routes to qualify for an olympics um so just simply that you can qualify as an individual or you can qualify as a team and and the third route we qualified in london uh, as a host nation so mm-hmm. we didn't have to qualify we had a team qualified already but in that case we had so we got we we knew that we won the bid to host the olympics in 2005 i think i turned professional in 2006 when i graduated and then on we we had a squad we had the we had these contracts for 10 15 guys to train as a national squad for the next 6 years for to make the olympics so then it was all about and we already knew back then we're going to we're going to have a team in the olympics then it was about who makes the team then it was all internal competition so in that sense we yeah it was it was just about who was the best amongst us the second time round um we were trying to qualify as a team and in that sense you have to be in the top top five countries in europe uh and we were battling against poland and germany maybe ukraine um and yeah so it was a, a completely different kind of process but you spend a year trying to qualify it's an entire year of results um just basically from the world ranking and it's a grueling grueling process a year of well, there's eight World Cups, a World Championships, a European Championships, all that count. 
and it goes incredibly slowly and everything, the pressure just ramps up every event. It's, it's quite, it's a grueling process to go through. Do you feel any of the competitions you had before the Olympics help you prepare yourself for kind of the big time stage that the Olympics are? There's, there's one event, which is the university games, which is actually is the closest thing to the Olympics. I think it is the second largest multi-sport event in the world. Um, and that, that gives you a good sense, but is still a kind of a, an order of magnitude less in everything, just less focus on it. I mean, most people don't know what it is and everyone knows what the Olympics is. Um, but in that sense that you stay in an athlete village, you surrounded by these other sports teams, the other nations, and it's, there's so much going on. That's, that's a good preparation. But really what we see is that athletes tend to perform at their second or third Olympic games because the first one is just, is such a, an overwhelming experience. Obviously there are some, some brilliant kind of geniuses out there who just smash it in their first games. The, for the majority, that's, that's not how it goes. So which Olympics? So the 2012, the one mm-hmm. in London, and then was it the 2016 or was it? Yeah. Year? So 16 Rio. in Rio. Exactly. So my first games was my, my home hometown Olympics. And that, I mean, it's a, it's a privilege to go to an Olympic games and every Olympian would just, is just feels that, but it's, it's something else to compete in your hometown yep. Olympics. There is, I feel incredibly lucky to have had that opportunity because there will be nothing like it. That experience is, is just wild. I mean, the whole, the whole country and the whole city is gearing up to it for, for six years and you know, you're there in it. We were training in London. Uh, just, yeah, the focus to just, is just wild. And then it, it kind of comes around and we were, yeah, I had all my friends and family. We didn't, in fencing, you don't have many spectators, any competition. And then there's 4,000 people in this Olympic venue and all of my friends and family are there. Um, we go on the, we went on the tube at some point after our event and people are coming up to us kind of thanking us for our, uh, our performances. They had no idea who we were, but just <laughs> thanking us for being in the team. Yeah. It was an unforgettable experience. Do you, did you know many of the competitors on the other countries that were at the Olympics before going into the Olympics? Like, did you kind of face them before in other competitions? You kind of had an idea of what they would be like, or what yeah, we knew everyone. Had, you knew everyone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at that level, top, top 40, there are about 40 competitors in the Olympics. It's a small competition. It, for example, in the world championships, there'd be two to 300 in, in the event. So it's really pared down. But by that stage, we'll have, we'll have fought against everybody multiple times. And we know some of them are good friends. Some of them are, I mean, we will have been competing with them for, from, for 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Some of them from junior level, like we knew, we knew them all. We had video footage on them all. We, we'd study them. Um, there, there are no secrets by that stage. <laughs> Let's talk about the opening ceremony for each of the Olympics journey. The first one is in London. So it's your first time going to the Olympics. So at your home country. And then the second one, you had that experience of the previous Olympics, but it's kind of a different mindset now. What was going through your mind walking out there 
in both stages because first time Olympian, second time Olympian, but also representing Great Britain. Yeah, well, actually, the first in London, I didn't get to go to the opening ceremony. We, oh. uh, I was the, I was the reserve for our team, and this is part of a, a story that I think is worth talking about. But it culminated uh, in in me being the number four out of in a team of four, and the reserve doesn't get to walk in the opening ceremony. So you have to have been, you have to be an accredited Olympian. So I, I, I did compete, and then I could walk in the closing ceremony. Um, so Rio was the first time and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's a unique experience. It's a very strange, I mean, it just, it's wrapped up in the whole thing of it that for those two weeks, you know, that the entire world is watching you and everyone in your village. There's, it's like you are in your little village and the entire world focuses on all of you and you kind of you watch the tv and then you go out and you you have you see these kind of teams or these athletes who you've just seen competing and you realize like it's a it's a strange thing that suddenly this is we're just the focus of the entire world's attention um and yeah and i it's kind of a culmination of yeah growing up seeing these we have one particular poster at home in my parents house of of their, I think my mum's opening ceremony in Mexico, 68. Uh, that would have been my dad. And then to, to kind of be in one myself is kind of closing this long arc of a storyline. I think you hit it right on the nose where the whole world is coming together and watching all the athletes perform at an elite level. And it's just, I even say when, um, I mean, the Olympics were just previously on uh, for winter, but I told family and friends, I go, don't expect me for two weeks because I got to focus on the Olympics. But it's just, you just see that the stories and everything that they talk about each of the athletes, it's just amazing. You kind of learn so much more when you haven't heard about them. Was this a way to kind of get, not get your name out there, but kind of let people learn maybe a little bit more about you in a way? I don't know how the other countries like broadcast because I only know based on how we broadcast here in the States, but was this a way to kind of show a different side of you or something new that maybe people didn't know about you? Uh, I don't, I can't say I ever thought about it like that. I mean, the, it is the first time that there's some kind of attention on us kind of in small sports in lots of the Olympic sports. It's the first time that people are interested and we do some media interviews before and if you win a medal and especially gold then there's a bit more but um no i i i kind of knew that this wasn't gonna be i wasn't focused on building a brand or anything it wasn't like this is my chance i was just i was enjoying the experience i was there for the sport and if it if it happened that there was something that i people learned about me then that was cool i mean the fencing community certainly learned about me a bit more and that was nice i got some some kind of some exposure there and that's my that's my community so that was that was the cool part and i think it also helps with people that maybe aren't experienced with fencing they learn about the sport and mm. because this is the first time they're watching it because for me I that we don't get competitions of fencing because in US it's still growing. Um, 
but this is the opportunity for us to learn even more about it. Cause I think there's so many sports that they show that you're like, when has this been a sport? Why, why am I not watching this? But I would agree. Olympics was the first time I learned about fencing. Um, I actually had, my grandfather was a fencer, not in the mm. Olympics, but uh, he talked about fencing before and that was the first time I experienced it. Then he talked about, oh, I watched it. And then there we are. What was it like competing? So it's like your first, is it called the match? I, I'm Yeah, match, I, fight. Yeah. Like talk about that, like getting ready, going out there on the, I, I can picture it. It's the, it looks the like piste. a runway kind of in yeah, a way. We call it a piste actually, piste. like skiing. So, so talk about that experience. The, you mean the experience in the Olympics or just kind of preparing for for any fight? Compe- competing in the Olympics. So that, I guess the 2016, unless you, um, you said you were a reserve in the 2012. Yeah, so I yeah I came on for the team, but yeah, 2016. So I mean, it's very it is unlike any other tournament. There's so many kind of very clear rules about where you can be, where you can walk, and like where you have to warm up. And there's might be two different warm up rooms. Um, so there's much more kind of regimented. But everyone warms up in the same area, so you kind of like you're warming up. You can see your opponent. You know who you're going to fence. You've known it for weeks, actually. So you've done all the homework on the, on them for your first match. And then you see the tableau, so you know who could be next and next. Um, actually, I have a, a pretty amazing, pretty cool story from that, from that preparation time in Rio. I, was, I went to the toilet just kind of as I was warming up. Just usually went to the toilet, went into one of the cubicles. And in the cubicle next to me, I heard somebody violently throwing up really kind of having a horrible time there and i was like oh that doesn't sound good so i came out of my cubicle like slowly washed my hands to to wait to see who was going to come out of this cubicle and out walks this one of the italian team members who was just white white as a sheet looked like death and i thought you you poor bugger you've got poison food poisoning or you've been sick on your olympic debut i think it was his first olympics yeah as ah you poor guy Anyway, it goes on, day kind of continues, and this guy, Daniele Garozzo, he ends up winning the gold medal. Oh. And it was clearly, it was just a horrendous bout of nerves that caused him to just, to really react horrendous, yeah, horribly. And he must have just, he was, that's the true, I mean, people always think that the best of the best, they just don't, they feel confident, they don't, they don't struggle, they're just going to go out and nail it. But this was a guy... He was the best on the day. He was suffering and he had to, he had to accept the, this horribly uncomfortable feeling and get out there and do the job anyway. And I think that's a super cool lesson for people to realize that even the best, they have horrible nerves, they're, they're in doubt, they're under pressure, they don't feel good. And it's just whether you've got the skills. I mean, he, was incre- he must have been incredibly skillful to just accept that this is how it is. I got to go out there and do my job. And that's, that's what it's about. It's not about feeling confident and then doing it. It's about just doing your job. And then at some point you'll, you'll get the feeling and that's yeah. So that was, that was quite a, quite a unique insight into, into high performance. Um, but yeah, I mean, you go through, you just try and stick to your routines. I had a completely solid routine, a mental warm up routine alongside my physical warm up routine. So I'd done that 
thousands of times, kind of iterating on it every competition, but but really it was completely set by then. So you know how you're going to feel and you get led to the waiting room, you're sitting on the chairs and led to kind of before you go out onto this piece. And the Olympics in in fencing, the the hall, they make they made make it look amazing. So this time in Rio, they had these kind of it looks a bit like Star Wars-y, like these different colored light, lit up pieces in a big cross section. And actually the the fencing event is the Olympics is one of the first and one of the only events to sell out every all the tickets in every event wow it's a it's not the biggest stadium so it can do about four to eight thousand depending on the olympics but it always sells out on every event because like you said people are kind of interested in the new sports in the olympics and they're like what's this fencing thing and then and then it looks cool as well it's all this high-tech technology and um so yeah you just i mean you it's it's all about trying to stay kind of trying to stick to your routines and not not make a big deal out of it it's the biggest event of your life and you have to treat it like it's any other competition i think when you mentioned that it's something new and i think fencing it's quick action like it's not there's not much like a stalling period where people are waiting it's like you have that first set you go you continue it keeps going fast paced so you're always intrigued like what's going to happen next who's going to win and things like that mm-hmm. and i think that's what's so enjoyable from a viewer from people that have never seen it or never competed it's like you don't know what to expect because like you said on that day the italian he was i mean i've had those moments <laughs> um but he went out there performed do you ever have to face him i fenced him plenty of times yeah so like was he ever like that before that kind of experience or this is like the first time you had that he he actually i don't know about the the throwing up part i i never heard that about him i think it was probably just this time uh, that was actually the first event senior kind of world-class event he ever won so he he was not a favorite and so that was kind of an additional bit to that story that he's he went and had his best day ever having had that kind of horrible start. Yeah. After Rio, did you kind of think, can I do this again? Can I go for another Olympics or what was going through your mind? Like, am I ready for that next step in your career? Uh, well, actually, yeah, I would, I'd been planning it for, for two years. I, after the, the London Olympics, I took a break again. So I, it was a, it was a difficult year. It was a, it was a super stressful year, actually that London Olympic year. So I needed some time off. I took a full year, went traveling around the world. Uh, One of the places on my, on my list was in, was Copenhagen in Denmark where I met my now wife and never went home again or never, never moved home again. So I just ended my year of traveling, came straight back to Copenhagen and I've been living here ever since. So that year turned into two years of a break and I was, doing a little bit of training here and there, no competitions. And then I saw that my team was doing pretty well and that maybe they could, maybe they could use me as well. And so I got on the phone to the, the manager of the British team and said, I'm thinking about coming back. And we made a little plan to, to see if I could get back up to speed. Uh, but at that time, I, I was kind of agreed with my wife. I was going to, or my girlfriend at the time, I'd do these two years, try and make it to Rio. And then I'd, I'd hang up my swords and that would be it. So I, I went into it kind of eyes open. This was going to be my last two years shot. I'm pretty sure if 
if I'd if I'd wanted to, I'd have, I'd have had a, a fairly decent chance again with the team for for Tokyo, um, but but that just wasn't it wasn't on the cards. It wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to move on after that, so I was I was perfectly kind of ready for that. You mentioned earlier in the interview that fencing isn't like a sport where it's funded as much or it's kind of like you can take that as a career path with financials. Were you ever doing things behind the scenes or as a backup in case like an injury may have happened or like you took a break for a while? Did you kind of think about what could I do to maybe support because you did say that now you're living in Denmark and you got to support a family and things like that? Um, or was that never on, on your mind? Yeah, as a, I mean, I did my degree. I did a degree in psychology before there was these. Before we won the Olympic bid, so that before there was a chance to be a professional fencer. So by that at that time, I was thinking about what I would do in my life outside of fencing, anyway. But actually, for the first good number of years, those six years leading up to the London Olympics, I wasn't doing anything else. I wasn't preparing for what what if. I was learning the guitar and learning some Spanish, but nothing to really think like, what, what would I do in terms of injury? And that's, it's not very smart. Actually, it's a good idea to have a, have a plan um, or at least explore other interests. Uh, but then after London, I mean, I took this time off. Part of that was uh, doing an amazing four month course in Canada, learning how to be a, an adventure sports guide and, that was a kind of thing like let's explore this. I love being outdoors in nature. It's still sport. Could I, could this be part of my, kind of my career going forwards? Um, then I moved to Denmark and did a bit of work here and there. So doing other things. And, um, and then as soon as I came back to the sport, then I was, I spent the entire time preparing the next step. So knowing this was two years, what's coming next and, and got it all lined up in advance. So then I've kind of clicked like, it's a good, I need to be prepared for when I, when I stop, but I was very lucky that I, I stopped when I planned to stop and not, it wasn't cut short. It wasn't mm -hmm. on, on yeah, fate's terms. It's kind of like you kind of got to write the ending, not something else wrote the ending to your story. Yeah, exactly. Was it how not many athletes have that, have that. Luck. Yeah. Mm. Was it helpful that your girlfriend at the time was very supportive on when you moved to Denmark and still wanting to pursue going to Olympics? Was that helpful for you because you had that support and you could live out, still continue to do what you loved? Well, yeah. I mean, it took a, it took some, some conversations about it because I, we didn't have a family at the time. So that, that definitely made, made a big difference, but um, it was still, it was, we'd been living together for a year and a half and I wasn't going out traveling and I was going to be going into this new kind of, well, for her, a new, a new path with traveling every week or every other week and away for weeks at a time. And yeah, so it took some conversations, but then when we bought in, then we were both bought into it. And then it was, it's super important to have that support back home. Mm. Looking at your whole entire fencing career, would you have changed anything or do you feel that every step was a great experience and you learned a lot about it? Um, there, there's, there's one experience I would definitely change, which, so I was a bit of a, a rebellious 
kid, even a bit older than a kid as well. Um, so I was kind of, I'd perform, I'd, I'd, I'd be like, I'll, if I perform in the competition, then I can let loose a bit after. And then I was at one, I was at my last junior world championships and I was, I was like one of the senior guys in this team. We got juniors is up to 20. So I was 20 years old almost. And I had a night out in Bulgaria. This was, and this was, this was also in the middle. I'd had, we'd had our individual tournament. We hadn't had our team event yet. Went out, got drunk, came back to the hotel and, and started kind of messing around, set off some fire extinguishers, like some pretty stupid stuff. Anyway, it was like the morning we, yeah, long story short, we got kicked out. We got, I got sent home with, with some of the other guys in the team. And this was my, my last junior experience in the world championships. And we were being sent home in disgrace. So that, that, I mean, that was a, that was a definitely a regrettable moment. And I mean, I, I, I guess I, I learned that lesson before I'd even finished with that kind of that chaos that was such a dumb thing to do yeah, but it kind of shows to me just looking back no i wouldn't i wouldn't choose to have it i didn't need to have that experience to learn anything about myself but but it definitely serves to show in stark light the kind of transformation that i went through from that period to the end of my career it's kind of 10 12 years later um it just couldn't have been more different who the kind of person i was when i finished as an athlete I was just such an immature idiot by the time I at the time I was 20 and those 10, 12 years, they proved to me what, what a career in elite sport can do for, for a person and their character. That moment was the, like when you're training and it's kind of long hours, long days, do you feel that you needed something to kind of let loose because you were so busy all the time and maybe that was kind of a turning point that maybe you can't be doing that anymore because you are representing yourself, your team and at the junior worlds, your country almost. I don't think I needed that as a, as a let loose. Actually the training hours are not, not crazy long in fencing. It's very intense training. So you only do kind of two, three hours at a time and maybe on a camp you'll do a couple of sessions a day but most of the time you're doing one session a day so it's not it wasn't a kind of necessary let loose it was more that i didn't want fencing to define me so i wanted to have this kind of i wanted to be myself in mm-hmm. as well in this kind of social fun loving way but i mean i was definitely i realized very quickly i can't be doing this like for those reasons you said i'm representing i'm i'm way too old to be doing crazy stuff like that um but yeah and then and then pretty quickly when i was when i became professional and i was being paid to do it it was obvious like you can't you can't go you can't live like that you have to commit and take some responsibility but that that didn't that lesson didn't sink in right at the beginning of being a professional either i was still trying to be a bit of kind of fun time lawrence at the same time as professional athlete lawrence I mean, we see it nowadays with athletes. They kind of get that big moment or they go pro and they go a little bit crazy. And especially nowadays with social media that it's out there forever. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't take it back. So it's oh, kind boy, of- am I glad there was not smartphones <laughs> in that period that that would have sunk me and my 
that that would that stuff would still be coming up now i'm sure he would be like um how do i email to get this off the internet please yeah. after you retired what was next for you what was that next journey so I was I was very lucky again that I was I was living in Denmark and the Danish Fencing Federation were hiring a performance director for the first time and I was probably the most experienced person to do that job in the country and so <laughs> so I kind of uh, yeah I stepped into that role so I went directly from being an athlete to being the performance director in charge of a, a national team and the national program and had a an amazing time doing it actually it was it was a wonderful job varied and challenging in in all sorts of ways uh so that i've been doing that i was doing that for the love for five years and and only just left that role now you mentioned earlier that your coach played a big part in your life and how he was a mentor was this kind of a, your opportunity to be that kind of leader role for denmark's fencing team yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd come to a kind of philosophy of leadership of sport that I felt was important, um, the way I think sports should be done, even at the elite level. And th- this was a chance to have an impact on this kind of these journeys that young athletes are, are on. So I definitely saw that as a, a great opportunity. Have you been te- or were you telling them things that you experienced and kind of preparing them so they kind of had that expectations if they continued this down the line as they got older? Yeah, I was trying to help them to avoid the the pitfalls that I was go- that I went through as a in my long career, and I think there are loads of lessons that we can learn uh, that, that our young athletes can learn that means they don't have to suffer all of those same setbacks. So I was trying to I would. For a start, I was bringing sports psychologists to work a lot closer with our athletes from as as early as possible, kind of 14, 15-year-olds upwards, because I, I just recognized from my experiences the power of training your mind, which I think some athletes just don't, don't they don't have the opportunity kind of given to them. They don't know it. They don't notice it. And it makes the difference. I think it makes all the difference. Um, yeah, just creating kind of fun engaging atmospheres and experiences in training camps so it's not just yeah yeah getting helping them see the wider value of what they're doing was a big part of it so it's not just about the results and how good they are how they're ranking but how they're growing and the relationships they're having the experiences they're having um helping them stay kind of committed and motivated through through that through the there there'll always be tough times your results won't always be there and there'll be long periods where you're stagnating or you're not satisfied. So there needs to be this, there needs to be a good reason why you're still doing it, especially in somewhere like Denmark, where again, there's no funding for pro- professionals and uh, they're all paying their own way, junior, senior level. So they really have to be, have to be shown. It's a good, it's, it's really worthwhile doing this in. And I think there are amazing, incredible things that make it worthwhile that are not just what, how many medals you have and the results you get. I think that's so great that you kind of took your experience and wanted to help educate the athletes a lot more because I think they see the value in you because you've been through it. You've gone through where they are today and gone through the process and went pro and elite levels and that you're taking what you learned and molding it in a way that helps them go through that path 
and be more mindful and kind of learn a little bit more than just perform, perform, perform. It's kind of learn more about themselves, learn about different areas besides that performance aspect. Yeah. And I had this one, this experience that I alluded to before, kind of leading up to the London Olympics, which really sowed the seeds for my entire approach to sport and what I wanted to do with these guys. And so you, I told you, we, as I said, we'd kind of had these six years leading up to the Olympics. We had this team qualified. I was throughout that entire time, I was the number one or two in the team uh, with my t- that teammate that I had from the beginning. Um, we were the two kind of senior members of the team all the way through. And then in Olympic year, first, first training session of two, 2012 in January, second or third, it would have been, I tripped over in, in training, put my hand down to stop myself and broke my wrist on Ooh. my sword arm. So this connects a little bit to why I was the reserve and I couldn't walk in that ceremony. I had, I had to have two surgeries in my wrist, one to kind of put a pin in and, some, and wire it up so it wouldn't move, and then another surgery to pull the wires out. So I had four months from January till May without any fencing training. And our Olympic selection was happening in June. So, and I, I could go in, I could do physical training, but nothing with my arm, obviously. And I knew I would have this withered arm come May that hadn't done anything for, for months. And I would have a, about a month, maybe a month and a half to get back up. I wouldn't, I didn't know if I could get to any fencing level, let alone Olympic fencing level. And it was a super dark, it was an incredibly dark period for me, probably the darkest time of my fencing career. I felt bitter and resentment to my teammates and just kind of self-pity of like, why is this happening to me now? I just got this first glimpse of the Olympics that we've been waiting for for six years. And, but at the same time, as I was kind of sinking into a kind of semi-depression, I started working with a sports psychologist, an amazing sports psychologist. And I'd, I'd had sports psychs before who just didn't, didn't really do anything for me. And this one just changed my entire perspective on performance and, and what it means to be an athlete. And we started by working on, on my values and linking that to how I wanted to be in, in my day-to-day life because I was having a tough time going into the training center, just training physically and seeing these guys working towards the Olympics, thinking my, my dream was kind of dying there. And it slowly kind of through this work with her over a few months, it slowly kind of sunk in and helped me get to get to a place. So I did get, end up getting selected as the fourth in the team, as I said, which was not my dream. The dream was to be in the individual and the team event and and then Mm -hmm. win the Olympics, obviously. Um, But I got selected and I still had to kind of sit, be the reserve guy. And, and then, yeah, got found, got managed to get myself to a place where I was, I could be proud of the kind of teammate, the supportive teammate I was. And, and really, yeah, was, was able to be proud of that, that Olympic kind of experience in the end, certainly not the first few months of my kind of journey there, but that's why actually the, my, my Olympic debut, when I came on to, to fence against Italy in my first in the Olympics in the team event, that's, that's still probably the highlight of my entire fencing career was that feeling I had stepping onto the beast in my home games with my friends and family around, but just knowing that I'd done the work and I'd gotten myself to a place where I could, I could really be proud of how I, how I, how I'd held myself for those 
those kind of couple of months before the Olympics. So that was a that was just a life changing experience and kind of showed me what you can do with the right support, and and that was I, that was the foundation of what I've been working with ever since. Have you since retiring? Have you ever had the urge to get back out there, or you're good at where you're at right now? Like I, I want to compete again. Uh, just a little bit, not, not huge. I'd like to do some training. I do, I do the odd bit of training still with the, with the squad here. Um, yeah, sometimes when I watch the competitions going on, I think I could, I could probably still be there physically. I'm in, I'm in no shape, but, but yeah, it's just such a fun experience. There is nothing like competing at the, at that kind of elite level. I, I always think it's kind of amazing. You reflect that that level of nervousness and that like tension that you feel every week, almost in a competition, it doesn't really exist in normal life. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes you might have a job interview or a particularly big like presentation that gets you nervous and like you have to perform, but it's so rare that you really on like it's on you and you have to perform now and you care about something. So, and we, as athletes, you get that week in week out, even some trainings, you can get that kind of that feeling. Um, so that's that's kind of what I miss that living in that space of yeah nervous excitement and discomfort that you have to get through. Talk about being an author. What's the book about, and what's the mission that readers are wanting to learn through reading it? Yeah. So at the same time as I retired in from sport in 2016, I I joined a, an amazing charity in the started in the U.S. in Chattanooga in Tennessee called the True Athlete Project. And they'd spread to the to the UK, and they have a an amazing mission to create a more compassionate culture of sport. So that piece I said about changing from being super self critical to being mm-hmm. far more compassionate to myself and forgiving and just performing far, with more freedom that that's one part of it. There's just the whole of sport has gone too too brutal and dehumanized almost. It's all about the results and not about the experiences and the growth and the, the relationships. That's just a secondary kind of element. And everyone's focus is the win at all costs kind of culture at the moment. So this charity had an amazing philosophy, really, an approach. And I, I uh, quickly became the director of their mentoring program, which matches elite athletes with younger athletes and takes them through a year-long program together. Uh, and over these kind of this kind of time, I, yeah, we've developed our, our approach and, and it's really something quite special in the world of sport. It is actually unique. There's no one else doing something or seeing sport like we do. It's this kind of dichotomy of how sport can be an incredibly powerful, positive force in the world, but so, so rarely lives up to that. Mm-hmm. And this kind of culture of the results focused cultures is behind that and big business has, has kind of pushed it in that direction. So, uh, yeah, we were always thinking about writing down our kind of a manifest manifesto of our, our philosophy. And during the lockdown, I decided to just give it a crack and went to a publisher and they signed it up in the UK. And so I ended up writing this book, which is, yeah, it's called, it's called becoming a true athlete and it's a practical philosophy for flourishing in sport. And really it's, it stems also from that time working on my values and getting through that dark time in in leading up to the London Olympics. It's about how 
we need to do better in sport and we need to we need to refocus we've lost track of the sport's true values and what it really gives us and kind of yeah how it can be a positive force for good and how we can get back there by refocusing on on the things that really have value because the results they don't matter at all so many olympic champions find themselves feeling like it was that all it was the day after they win or or just or even in depression because they don't have anything to strive for anymore mm-hmm. so yeah the book where I, I set up some set out these kind of these virtues of being a true athlete which are the things that we know are vitally important to just thriving in life and in sport but it's so often they're just forgotten in traditional sport culture so awareness responsibility integrity and compassion so these are the four true athlete virtues and you you don't have to have any of those to become world champion you can become world champion you think of lance armstrong had zero integrity very little compassion the best at his sport so you don't need them to become the best but you do need them if you want to be a rounded healthy happy person and they can really contribute to your performance as well so that's kind of where what we set out is that you start with the foundation of growing yourself as a person become making sure that you are thriving in life and you are setting yourself up for just a, a far better performance and a far unlocking your potential and and then i kind of dive into some of the strategies and kind of tools that you can use to 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 develop those those traits those characteristics like you mentioned mindfulness a mindful approach mindfulness is a big part of it becoming more self compassionate more compassionate to others in your sport so that that's it in a nutshell it's it's all stems from my my experiences again and 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 those of the the other members of our team in the triathlete project that see sport for being what it could be is so much more than what it is at the moment and how do we get there i like that i like the mission that you guys are creating with that what does the future look like for you what are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years personally and professionally so i'm still involved with the triathlete project but i've left my role in as a performance director now it's it was a great job but it just it doesn't fit with having a young family i've got a, a one and a three year old and that job it's, it's just a lot of travel in the evenings and weekends so i've i've moved over into a, a part-time role in this charity still director of mentoring and growing our, our kind of our work in all of this space and started can started a consultancy as a kind of performance consultant and coach working with businesses working with sports organizations and athletes um so i've just started i left my 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 role in danish fencing at the end of last year and i was on paternity leave for a couple of months so i've just started this new this new phase in my career and it's incredibly exciting i'm i'm bringing this kind of compassionate approach to performance out into into other spheres and seeing how that lands uh and i from what i hear the feedback i get is that there's a whole lot of need for it i've done since publishing the book i've done a whole lot of interviews and quite a lot of podcasts and the one thing that people really want to ask about when they've read the book is this self compassionate piece how how does self compassionate fit together with high performance because it doesn't traditionally it's like athletes are these super kind of harsh self critical quite brutal on themselves like i used to be like I was as a junior that's what people think of as like top elite athletes um but there's but there's clearly this this intrigue this curiosity and like does that is that 
uh, can that work? And and people want it. I think people, just everyday people, are, are too harsh on themselves. Uh, we're we're very very, especially in the West, we're we're very good at loving, being loving to our friends and families, and very find it very difficult to say show the same love to ourselves, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> of course, you should be able to give yourself the same love you would you would your best friend or a family member. Um, but but current culture doesn't doesn't help us kind of get there and that's a bit of a mission that i'm on at the moment is to show how the self-compassionate approach is far more effective to create top performance and just more sustainable a happier experience of it as well the final question i'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge you should start by exploring your own values. What is it that you value in life and about yourself? And then you can tie, you can start tying your behavior to that. If you live life by your values, that's how you get through all of the hardest times. That's how I got through the darkest time of my career. And it's, it's an unbelievable foundation. It, not, it might not be that everything goes your way, but you'll know at the end of it that you've done all you could to kind of to live the life that you wanted mm. and that starts with being explicit about what do i value about myself and choosing kind of core values not just everything i, I value a hundred things it's what are my three to six kind of core values and how do i live by them that's the best the best route to to having a fulfilled life and overcoming obstacles tools there's an incredible tool, probably the best tool in my toolbox as, a, toolbox as a performance coach is mindfulness training. There is nothing, we have no other training like mindfulness for raising the awareness of what's going on in your, in your own mind, for treating yourself with kindness, with non-judgment, for controlling your emotions and just being able to react skillfully to things that, that come up in your life. So... Those two things together, if you can explore your values and train in mindfulness, you have an unbelievable foundation for just dealing with whatever life throws at you. Well, Lawrence, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.